Welcome to Talkumentaries, where we'll discuss a different documentary each week. A good documentary is a starting point to better understand our world and the people in it. Documentaries educate and entertain us. They allow us to see the world through someone else's eyes. Join us each week as we connect with our world and open up meaningful conversations with those around us. Thanks for listening. This week we chose The Witness, an American true crime documentary originally released in October of 2015. Produced and directed by James Solomon, it follows Bill Genovese as he investigates the 1964 murder of his sister Kitty. According to news reports at that time, she was attacked and killed while 38 people allegedly did nothing to help her. It's currently streaming on Netflix. This podcast will contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. I'm Della Grant. I'm Claire Turner. And we really like documentaries, so we thought we would have a podcast to talk about the documentaries we watch and like. Yeah, so so. this is our premiere episode. (laughs) (laughs) When we totally know what we're doing. (laughs) Live from the dining room. (laughs) So tell me your thoughts on The Witness. I really enjoyed watching it. I remember studying it and hearing about it. And every once in a while, you know, you see articles that mention it or it's mentioned in pop culture. My heart really ached for Bill Genovese. Mm -hmm. Hearing his story and his narration, you know, it was so personal. And, you know, seeing his family and hearing about how it had affected Kitty's families' lives, you know, Mm -hmm. just, it was so touching, and I was glad that he made it. You know, I I feel like it gave him some closure. I really enjoyed watching the documentary. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure if I would enjoy it going into it, but I'm glad that I watched it. Yeah. How about you? I'm glad I watched it, too, and I'm glad he went to the trouble to make it. I majored in psychology in college, and even without majoring in psychology, I feel like it comes up in discussions about human nature all the time. But I remember in in psych classes it being a case that was brought up over and over again to illustrate the bystander effect, Mm -hmm. that when something, you know, some big crisis happens and there are a lot of people in close proximity to each other, they will all assume that somebody else is doing something about it, Mm -hmm. and so they won't. And that it also it also inspired a lot of theories about people living in urban settings and how even though they're packed into apartments very tightly with each other, they sort of build these sort of walls between themselves and mm-hmm. don't really want to get involved with what's going on right before their eyes or right on the other side of the wallpaper. And, and I had heard going into this that this documentary was done by her brother and that he kind of, you know, found some cracks in that narrative that all these people had witnessed it and all had shrugged their shoulders and decided not to say anything or intervene in any way. And so I thought, well, that sounds like something I want to see because the story initially sounded so hopeless and so damning. Of and yeah, it was are. used regularly to shame people right. into taking action. Right. Like, well, you know, this is the Kenny Genovese effect. We have to do something. We can't right. just stand here and not do something. Right. So I found it very hopeful to think, okay, if somebody has dug in and found that people, that there really wasn't like three dozen people who just looked at this and didn't care, mm-hmm. I need to see that because that will probably help reinvigorate some faith in humanity. But I wondered how I guess she had several brothers and he was the youngest of those. And so he was a teenager when this happened to her. Well, no, not not even a teenager. He was 12. I think he was 12 when this happened to her. Or maybe 16. He was 16 when she was killed. He was 16. Okay. Right. And he was living with his family. They had moved out of the city. And Kitty was still living in Queens. Okay. 
So he didn't get to see her except on the weekends. Right. I think when he was six, he moved out of the city. Okay. So he was the youngest of the brothers that she had, but they had a very close relationship. And so it was interesting to see when he talked to his other brothers about this, the different reactions they had to it. Her other brothers seemed to have it. It was just sort of an interesting note in their family history, but it wasn't something they really dwelled on. And it was sad, but it wasn't something they really thought about a whole lot. And they didn't quite understand why he was thinking about it so much. Bill, on the other hand, was thinking about it to the point of obsession. He couldn't really stop thinking about it. Right. He, at one point, said it affected every decision he'd made in his life. Right. And so throughout the beginning of the movie, you see him, you know, moving around the city and moving around the area where her apartment was and where the attack occurred. And he's doing all this in a wheelchair. And he, at some points, you know, maneuvers himself out of the wheelchair to go upstairs and things in these old apartment buildings that aren't very accessible. And he's got really no legs left. He seems to be amputated just below the hips on both sides. And you wonder what what happened there? Like, what's going on there? And you are expecting sort of an explanation, like, was he born this way? What's going on? And then eventually they go on to say he was um, inspired by Kitty's experience Mm -hmm. and by the narrative that nobody had jumped in to help to join the Marines because he felt like there were situations that he could jump in and help by being Mm -hmm. this hero. And that decision took him to Vietnam where he ended up being injured and losing both of his legs. Right. So that was a really vivid example of the ripple effect that Mm -hmm. this event had. And not just the event, but the way that it was framed. Mm -hmm. And also when he was injured, you know, his recollection of the Marines coming in to rescue him. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, reinforcing that people don't just stand by. Right. They really do come and help. Right. So, um, So it wasn't just the event itself that had a ripple effect. It was the way that it was framed uh, by the media afterward, after talking to a handful of people. And it was interesting to see him sort of... That was Pickles. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) What was that? It's Pickles the dog. He shakes, you know, the the fast body shake. Okay, it sounded like somebody taking a whole roll of bubble wrap and just (laughs) twisting it like... But his little ears will flap a lot when he does his fast body shake oh thing. Oh my gosh. I would love to see that filmed in slow motion. That... <laughs> so now I forgot where I was. Oh, it was interesting to see Bill, you know, sort of take apart that narrative that everybody has in their heads now of how this happened. And it sounds like it turned out to just be one New York Times reporter talked to a few people afterwards and came up with this big headline and this big story that all these people had witnessed it and all of them had decided to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And that was why this attack, you know, was allowed to continue. And this poor woman died in the doorway of an apartment building. And in asking lots and lots of questions, he found that that first reporter from the New York Times came up with that narrative and that all of the other outlets reporting on it just picked up his story And continued with it. Right. And didn't do a whole lot of their own investigating or questioning of what he had come up with. And it just sort of spread. And so he was able to do that by talking to people who were still, you know, that who could still be reached. Because this was 50 years ago. Right. It's not that easy to find people who lived in an apartment 50 years ago. They tend to have moved to other places or died. But he was able to find a few people who still remembered vividly what happened. He was able to find out that his sister did not die alone that she had a friend in the apartment who had gotten word of what was happening and went down with her and was 
holding her when she died. Yeah, I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah, to know that your loved one wasn't alone and and had someone that she knew Mm -hmm. with her. That's huge. And no one in their family had been given that information. Um, It wasn't until he started digging through uh, police reports and court records that Mm -hmm. he found that, you know, that one little morsel of information could make all the difference for how he viewed his sister's death. Yeah, because, you know, early in the documentary, you know, he questioned, you know, how did she feel there dying alone? I mean, that would tear at my soul, too, to think about a loved one going through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. New York Magazine, I just by coincidence saw this article from April of 2016 recently. Mm. And so I saved the article and the title is How the False Story of Kitty Genovese's Murder Went Viral. And in it, you know, it elaborates a little more on uh, some of the detail that Bill Genovese had uncovered. It says, none of this had taken place if it hadn't been for a chance meeting between A.M. Rosenthal, the Times Metro editor, and then police chief Michael Murphy. As Nicholas Lehman wrote in The New Yorker in 2014, 10 days after Genovese's murder, which had initially gotten only a brief squib in the Times during a year which saw 636 murders in New York, the two had lunch. Murphy spent most of the lunch talking about how worried he was that the civil rights movement, which was at its peak, would set off racial violence in New York wrote Lehman. But the conversation eventually shifted through happenstance to the recent murder of a woman named Kitty Genovese. Murphy told Rosenthal there had been 38 eyewitnesses, quote, over a grisly half hour of stabbing and screaming, Murphy said, none of them had called the police. Rosenthal assigned a reporter named Martin Gansberg to pursue the story from that angle, unquote. So that was 10 days after the murder mm. that the the primary article about 38 eyewitnesses mm-hmm. was written mm-hmm. so which I thought was interesting too yeah so there was a huge time lapse between you know getting the first on the scene kind of facts that you would as a reporter yeah and coming up with that whole um, narrative yeah. that people remember 50 years later exactly because I mean <laughs> yeah your memories are not 100% accurate, and you know, people may not have been around to talk to the reporter 10 right. days later. Right. I mean, just all kinds of different And reasons. one of the things that Bill was able to uncover by visiting these apartments um, and looking out onto the area where this happened to his sister was that the attack, you know, that grisly half hour you mentioned just now, it happened in a couple of different places in within a city block. Mm-hmm. And... So he found that when she was first attacked, a gentleman in the apartment heard her scream. He opened his window and yelled, hey, get out of there. Mm -hmm. And the attacker did. He immediately fled the scene. And so that guy thought that was the end of it. Right. He didn't know she'd been stabbed. He just felt that she was being harassed. And the, but the guy was leaving and he felt like that was the end of it. Right. And then the attack continued around a corner where most of the apartments, you know, where these 38 people are being vilified for not doing anything could not have seen what was happening because exactly. it was it continued around a corner where she was now out of view because the attacker came back when he found you know nobody was coming he was just being yelled at from afar so 
Still a very sad story. Still unfortunate that somebody didn't swoop in and rescue her right away, but it, it's definitely not as black and white as people are terrible, and if they see something happening, they're not going to rescue exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> and even the third part of the attack took place in an interior like stairwell mm-hmm. of a building. Mm-hmm. So again, the people would probably would not have heard mm-hmm. as much noise if any and the one guy did come out to the upper landing you know when he heard the the noise down at the the bottom of the steps and he didn't do anything yeah but people had called the police Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one person that bill interviewed uh, the woman said you know when i called the police Mm -hmm. they said they had already gotten other calls about it right so it wasn't even just her it was additional people exactly and um so yeah the guy at the top of the stairs that guy needs a talking to, but it's unfortunate that his failure to act, you know, ended up being an indictment of three dozen people who really didn't do anything wrong and right. did what they could for the most part um, yeah. in an in a unusual situation. I just, yesterday, it turned up in my Facebook feed that there is a movie, a fictional uh, adaptation of this story coming out called 37. Have you oh, seen this? No. And it stars Samira Wiley, who plays, um, she's in Orange is the New Black. Um, Pousse is the character's name. Girl with the short, short hair. Uh-huh. And it looks, from the trailer that I watched, it looks like she is one of the people who, I don't know why it's called 37, because weren't there 38 witnesses? Maybe well, you know, it's funny. Some things I've seen referred to 37, and some things I say referred to 38. Yeah. It's, so it looks from the trailer like she is the you know mother of a family that lives in one of those apartments. Um, but the little synopsis I just looked up says the film is inspired by a true story set in 1964 in New York where several neighbors witness the brutal murder and rape of Kitty Genovese and do not intervene. The film peeks into the lives of three disparate families, the lonely neighbor and the doorman. Hmm. Viewers connect with the neighbors and understand their decisions not to act by following their day-to-day struggles. They deal with their personal lives the same way they deal with the murder. If they don't talk about it, it didn't happen. That's interesting. So it sounds like that might have been in production before Mm -hmm. this came out because it sounds like it feeds into the narrative we've all been hearing for years and years. Stuff like this takes on a life of its own anyway. I mean, this is going to live forever no matter what Mm -hmm. evidence is uncovered to the contrary. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. They're making the movie from their perspectives. And she wasn't raped, though, right? That's another thing that stood out to me. I don't think she was raped. I I think they said attempted sexual assault. Well, I know in the interviews and information they talked about when it came to the the guy, Malone? No. The perpetrator? Oh, Um, Mosley. Mosley. He had said he was just looking for any woman, just a random woman, Mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to rape and kill. And he had raped another woman mm-hmm. I think yeah. either before or after Kitty right outside her house right outside her house and he drug yeah. her body into the house and, and raped set her fire to and, the house. yeah <clears throat> yeah well the rest of her family was upstairs yeah yeah what a winner <laughs> Um, yeah. That's another thing that was interesting to me about this is that all these years of hearing this story, I don't think I had ever gotten a look at who the perpetrator was. Yeah, like, there's so much focus on the witnesses that exactly. you don't, you don't. I don't remember ever having gotten a look at him. And when his mugshot turned up in this documentary, the first thing that struck me was he looked very feminine to me. Hmm. He looked. Uh, my husband and I talked about it the way you try to figure out who somebody looks like. Right. And we decided that he looked as though RuPaul and Pharrell Williams had had a child. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> he just had these very delicate features. And he yeah, looked like, that's true. Um, you know, it, pretty skin. not at all what you would picture a menacing 
yeah. murderer, someone who was out to stalk a totally. woman and kill a her. A random killer. I mean, not right. even like fueled for any particular reason other no, than just, just out to driving do around it. looking for a lady to kill. And that is not at all what I would have expected no. him to look like. And it was interesting to see his son. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a point in the documentary where Bill Genovese attempts to contact mostly himself because he's still in prison. Right. And he didn't have any interest in being interviewed for this. And so he wrote him a letter and hoped for the best with that. And in the meantime, got in touch with his son and had a sit-down conversation with Mosley's son, who is now a pastor. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting ripple effect for him, too, is that his father was this bad guy, and he it somehow manifested in him as wanting to be wanting to be the ultimate good guy by being a pastor and being... Totally. <clears throat> yeah, and he even said to Bill Genovese, you know, this affected our lives greatly, too. You know, he was seven when it happened, and he said for all of his memorable life you know, after that, he you know, was teased about being the son of a killer, and mm-hmm. he said obviously trying to make amends by becoming a pastor, and that's really sad. So many lives were affected. Yeah. After processing all the information in the documentary, I found it really incredibly sad that all these years the focus has only been on the witnesses, not even on Kitty and her life. You know, we knew nothing about her. Yeah. Um, and Bill had even mentioned, you know, there were so many aspects of her life that he and the family didn't know mm-hmm. about. And, you know, when you think about it, everyone's life is filled with so much information and, and so many things that mm-hmm. families don't know. And, you know, you know, we just don't, we don't really know each other. Right. And, um, yeah, I, and I really related to her in this telling of the story so much because I was at one point a bartender in my 20s walking home at night, you know, yeah. in a city where the rest of my family didn't live. Right. And I I don't know, you could see that happening to really just about anybody. And what would your family know about your day-to-day life if they had to come from hours away to piece it together? Yeah. And um, then it becomes this big <clears throat> circus where for 50 years they have to hear your name mm-hmm. used as an example of how people let you die alone Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that would be so hurtful right and so that was kind of came up in the conversation between Bill, Bill Genovese and this New York Times reporter who had come up with the whole people did nothing narrative was that this wasn't just a story that got wrong, you know, that was sort of framed in the wrong way in a paper and then forgotten. This is something that has spawned all kinds of theories about human behavior. And there's been whole university classes built around this case. And he was really proud of that. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, my inaccuracy is now a right. legend. It's really, yes. It's like a they write books about this. Right. Like, no, you got it wrong. So anyway, I just thought it was a really interesting um, way to just sort of dig back into a story that everybody thinks they already know and how important for this guy to be the one to do it um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't just trying to solve a mystery or retell a story that's been told wrong. It was his sister. And right. it's been bu- bugging him persistently this whole time. It led to a decision that led to an event that yeah. nearly killed him. Yeah, um, I don't think anybody else could have made this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And if they would have, it would not have been anywhere near as good. Right. Yeah. There were people that he was able to talk to in that story that I don't think would have talked to just a curious filmmaker. Right. You know, that he, his being her actual brother, opened doors that would otherwise have stayed closed for a yeah. while. Yeah. And then he had the actress reenact the crime. Yeah. That part was 
hard to watch, even though you knew it was an actress and you knew they had put signs on posts and in, on walls throughout the surrounding areas to say, you know, between this hour and this hour, there's going to be a woman screaming. Right. <laughs> We're just working on a movie here. But it was still very, even though everybody was prepared for it and you knew it wasn't real, it was a very haunting sound. Mm-hmm. Have a, a woman screaming for her life, you know, and have that sound bouncing off of brick walls and glass oh, yeah. windows all around her. But it also helped you visualize how the progression of the attack, because it moved from one part of the block to another, you could see how it would be out of sight for so many of those people for so long. Right. So they wouldn't be able to give a good description of what was happening or who was doing it. Something else that I thought really was highlighted in this documentary is what power we give the media, Mm -hmm. you know, and we... I think we're better about it now, maybe, about questioning alternative facts. Mm-hmm. But so many inaccurate stories will go viral. That's Maybe we're actually worse about it these days. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think the media is certainly more motivated by speed now. Oh, totally. Being the I mean, first this... to report this or that, and we'll figure out if it's true. And later. the media quotes each other, and it goes viral within the media, the mass mm-hmm. media. And so when the original source is corrected, all those other articles that were written that say, according to the Washington Post, those don't get corrected. Right. So, right. so in it's that trying, sense... like trying to put toothpaste back in the tube. It's, right. it's already out there. And, right. Yeah. But I think people are better armed now, at least with the internet, to be able, if they are so inclined, to research things. But yeah. we, so inclined is the key. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing how much of this media stuff is timely now with all of the, like you said, alternative facts and fake news. And that's still, I feel like people are much more suspicious now of news mm-hmm. and much more, even just a few years ago, there was a handful of news outlets that you would say, okay, if it's in this news outlet, then it's legit. And everything else is kind of like you need to dig a little deeper but in this very story it's the New York Times I mean that was probably at the height of their existence as a respected news source totally and you know when other journalists in the documentary were questioned about why didn't you question this they said because it was the New York Times Mm -hmm. yeah it was the New York Times and it was a much more interesting story than just one of hundreds of murders that happens and nobody knows why yeah um, yeah it's it's troubling that I don't know that how much we've gotten better in the media than that. It, it, I think the internet, as you said, it helps people who are so inclined to do better research of their own. But I still think a, an alarming amount of people are inclined mostly to just consume, consume, consume. Right. And maybe selectively consume, maybe this outlet over that one, but not really question a whole lot. That's true. Themselves. And, and even it, when facts are proven to be incorrect, right, they right. don't change their mind. Right. Actually, there was a good example of that just... A few weeks ago, I posted something to Facebook that seemed alarming to me, and you came in with some facts to like kind of talk me off a ledge. <laughs> I mean, I can get swept up in it too. Oh, there I was can a headline too. about um, the at the moment of Trump's inauguration, the general in charge of the National Guard for DC was going to be you know let go right at that moment right, of inauguration. Twelve oh one, right? And to me, and because the Washington Post had reported it this way, it, that sounded really sinister. Like at the moment of an like that just mm-hmm. sounded like something from a dystopian novel. This guy's going to come in and at the moment of his inauguration, you're right. done. And, but I didn't have any background with the National Guard. I didn't know anything about how things usually work with inaugurations. And so one 
you came in with like some information about how these things usually go down and how it's not, you know, actually that unusual. It's like, okay, all right. That's well, the thing that bothered me about that particular article, the Washington Post, is they didn't provide, in my opinion, enough information for people to know if it's a big deal or not. Mm-hmm. And they wrote it in this sensational way that was like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. And But they didn't provide data that said this is the first time this has ever happened this way. Right. Which would have been, I and think, which a I was actually deal. scanning for, and the right. only reference I found to whether if this was a normal thing to do or not was the general himself being quoted as saying he didn't right. know why he was being let go. But did yeah. that quote continue with him saying, "However, this is not unusual. We aren't usually given a reason when this happens, right. you know?" Or did they just go? He says he doesn't know either. Right. Because that to me was like, well, if he doesn't know, yeah. Oh my God, this is weird. And then in the same article, but further down, it did say all appointees are let go at that time at 1201 on Inauguration Day. Uh And I knew that about diplomats, but it just seemed like a National Guard general. That seemed like a whole different ball of wax. He's right there and he's in charge of the the proceedings themselves. Well, but it didn't actually say what role is the National Guard playing in the inauguration. Mm. You know, that to me was a, a key piece of information too. So, I was glad you know that NPR article yeah. that it did quote the post because the post originally broke the story mm-hmm. and quoted the general. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of the subsequent stories that the press printed, they mentioned the post and you know cited the, the post, which I think the Washington Post is a legitimate news organization. Right, I right. don't have a problem with yeah. the post, but they quickly had to get this article out. They put it on the internet. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that the Post did with that article is they kept updating it with more information and they didn't specify, like they didn't do it at the end and say, you know, here's an update with this information or here's a clarification or here's a correction. They would just change the article, but they did not change the date and time of mm-hmm. publication, which right. I found bothersome right. too. I mean, yeah. I think there needs to be some sort of trail here mm-hmm. because you know other news organizations like local papers and things that were using that story a lot of them had just captured the original story and published it so you could go back and compare right. you know what was changed right. on the post's website right. to what it originally had been so i mean those types of things i just felt like they were going for clicks Yes. And not providing real data. And so, and they got it. I mean, it worked for them, but it turned out to be a non-issue. Right. So I just have trouble with, and I do understand they're trying to get advertising dollars and clicks are important, but you know, if you lose your credibility in the process... Yeah. Then it it doesn't matter. In an atmosphere where everyone's jabbing their fingers left, right, and center and saying fake news, you want to be 100% legit and reliable. And that's not the first time that NPR has done a story that has brought down the drama level considerably um, of something that's been reported by another news outlet to be something very, very scary and alarming. And NPR even said prior generals of the Washington National Guard have not been let go Mm -hmm. during the inauguration. So this is new territory. But they still wrote it in a way that was like, but so we don't really know if it's a big deal or not. Right. They're not working people into a lather, but right. they're still providing the information so you can say, hmm, right. this is interesting. You and know? that's because there's gray area. And I think yeah. people are sometimes uncomfortable with gray area. They need to know, is this good or is this bad? That's true. Well, there's a lot of question marks and there's a lot of we don't knows right now. Yeah. And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence that NPR, BBC, mm-hmm. those outlets... 
Christian ten, Science Monitor did a good job with that article, yeah. too. They did a good version of that. Well, and NPR and BBC seem to me like, well, they are less beholden to advertisers, and so they're less mm-hmm. likely to be, want to get their clicks up and want to get their views up, and what do the you know Nielsen ratings say or whatever. Exactly. And I understand that like government-funded news is not necessarily a great thing in all cases either, because you don't want to be North Korea, but I do think it's nice to have a news source that isn't, whose ultimate goal isn't to get a whole bunch of views so they can get, you know, the Doritos account for advertising exactly. or whatever. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's gotten easier in a lot of ways to get reliable news, and it's gotten harder in a lot of ways to get reliable news. And I just think there's a lot more now to sift through mm-hmm. than there used to be. Totally. Because anyone can report news now. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. Yeah. Uh, we could start our own website and yeah. report news. We could quote the Washington Post. We could write articles all day and just say, according to the Washington Post, yeah. and do nothing but reword their articles. Right, right. Maybe put a cool little graphic with it that yeah. makes it look a little more titillating than it exactly. really is. Exactly. And every once in a while, or we could write it in a more sensational way mm-hmm. and put our own slant on it. Right. Because, you know, that's being done by some of these news so websites. It <laughs> makes you wonder now, that area where she, where Kitty Genovese was killed, Kew Gardens, we looked it up on Google Maps, like, during the, yeah. <laughs> the watching of the documentary. And everything there looks basically the same. The storefronts have changed. You know, what used to be a florist is now right. a, a copy place or whatever. But the building itself looks pretty much the same. And so if that same event happened now in that same place with the same number of people with windows facing Mm -hmm. out onto it, it would be interesting to see how that would unfold now, how it would be reported now by actual existing media, Mm -hmm. and how it would be potentially reported by private citizens. You know, with everybody's got a camera in their pocket now. Everybody's got the the ability to live cast whatever is happening in front of their eyes. Yeah. And we have much better logs of who is calling, mm-hmm. you know, with 911 systems. Right. And I was amazed that that police log was handwritten, just notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, everything was then. But everything would be logged by computers. You could verify exactly who called and when. Right. But for the eyewitness accounts, would it be too much information now? Would there be, I, I don't know. Would it be on YouTube? Would it be on YouTube within minutes of happening? It's uh, it's yeah. hard to say. Would, would, would I mean, the we, fact that more, more people could report it themselves make right. it a, a clearer story, or would it make it even muddier? That's true. And is it better or worse that we have been eating up this false narrative of her murder for all these years because maybe there is an upside to it. Maybe there is an upside to a full generation of students sitting there and hearing oh my god, all these people did nothing. I mean maybe that has inspired people to be more reactive when something happens around them or to be more concerned about their neighbor. Maybe having absorbed this narrative and taking it taking the New York Times at their word and everybody mm-hmm. else repeating it maybe it has had a positive effect in that people who think oh that's terrible that those people saw and did nothing maybe it has inspired people over the years to be more responsive when something happens I can't help but think it has driven people to action when they may have been more hesitant before I hope so I, I feel like too. it would for me I don't think I've ever had any real crisis pop up in you know around me like that but I would like to think I would be well I'm not going to be one of those people right I'm not going to be on the news saying yeah. Yeah. I didn't do much. I didn't care. And her death was not meaningless in that respect, I think. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a random right. killing for no reason. And possibly good ones. Right. Certainly tough ones for her family, but you know, maybe maybe a positive effect for society overall. This might be a good time to get to happy things. Our yeah. Ha- our happy ending. Oh. oh yeah. End ending. on a high note? <laughs> End on a high note. I don't that's know. It. Happy ending. I was like, oh, that's got a <laughs> cool meaning. You might not want <laughs> So this is not a massage parlor. Sorry, that's, that's <laughs> going to cost you extra. <laughs> 
All right. So I'm going to end on a high note. Yeah. Let's hear yours. Talk about something good for the week. Yeah. My daughter and I got to take a day trip to George Washington's <gasps> birthplace national monument, <gasps> which is run by the National Park Service. No way. Yeah. We did that a few days ago and just loved it. I'd never been there. had heard about it, but didn't really know that much about it. But we are working on a history project. So right. we took a day trip there and it's a working farm. Uh, we went on a Friday. It wasn't crowded at all. We were the only people there most of the time. <laughs> of course, it was, cl- it was cloudy and cold that day. So I'm sure it kept people away. Admissions free. They do give tours of what's called the Memorial House. It's not the actual house where George Washington was born mm-hmm. because that one burned on Christmas Day. Can't remember the exact year, but it was burned after he had moved actually to another place. But they rebuilt a house. So they do give tours of that house. And it has two artifacts that were original to when George Washington lived there. He lived there till he was age three. But they rebuilt it as like an old plan and they had 40 lambs that were only a a few weeks old and just adorable and a huge herd of Hogs Island sheep and one of them was really friendly so we got to like pet it and stuff <laughs> and which apparently was unusual the the park ranger was surprised when we said it was like the uh, the ram of the herd mm-hmm. had just come up to us and we got to pet it and rub his horns and everything Aww. that was the highlight for my daughter yeah um, we had a great time and so if you're ever in the area i highly recommend going to so this is different monument. from mount vernon it's different than mount vernon he died at mount vernon and lived there as an adult he was born here at um, it's the birthplace national monument it's not called a park but it is run by the National Park Service he was born there lived there till he was age three and it was it remained in his family after that Mm -hmm. it's in Westmoreland County which uh, it's on Pope's Creek which goes into the Potomac River to all of our nationwide listeners I'm sure (laughs) that you have (laughs) national parks near you that you would enjoy just as much Uh, so go and check them out I really liked it my happy thing is actually kind of related and something that I've been thinking about you guys as I listen to. I have become, even though I'm late to the game, I have become completely obsessed with Hamilton, the musical. And I was sort of vaguely aware of it when it first came out and it was such a sensation on Broadway and everybody was talking about it. It was winning all these awards. Sort of half paid attention to a thing on 60 Minutes about it. Like, well, that looks really good. You know, I bet there's a reason that people are raving about it so much. Maybe in a few years when tickets aren't a million dollars and they're available. Yeah. <laughs> um, in New York, I should probably check that out sometime, thinking years down the road. At some point after the election, a friend of mine who is very into musical theater and has become really wrapped up in Hamilton was telling me how it was helpful for her after the election, especially to listen to it because it has a lot of themes running throughout it that helped keep her feeling sort of hopeful and patriotic when she didn't really after the um, election. So she was sort of, you know, prodding me to listen to the soundtrack even if I couldn't get to New York to see a show anytime soon. And then, of course, there was that news story about Mike Pence turning up in the audience and he was addressed directly and that turned out to be, you know, conscious controversial for no real reason right and so it sort of was on my radar again all of a sudden I thought well let me listen to this and so I downloaded it uh, on iTunes and when I had a long drive to visit my um, parents who live about three hours away I thought well that'll be just about long enough to listen to that soundtrack all the way through let me give it a go and about three songs in I had goosebumps because it was just so I, I don't even have a word for it it was so um 
inspiring and so exciting to hear. Then by the end of it, I was just sobbing. I was in my car (laughs) just crying because, I mean, it just takes you through a whole range of emotions. Hmm. And I have to say, I would never in a million years have thought a musical about Alexander Hamilton would be, you know, I honestly, when I, even when I was hearing all these rave reviews, I thought, well, how interesting can it really be? It is just fascinating. I'll have to listen to the whole thing all the way through. I've only heard a song or two. Yeah. And so I had only heard a song or two, too. And that was when I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty catchy. Maybe I'll catch it sometime. But listening to the whole thing all the way through, it's like an opera. Hmm. And it just takes you through so many emotions and so many, there's so many universal truths in it. And it, it is kind of oddly comforting to know that things have been bananas in this country since the beginning. Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, one of the most controversial elections ever was uh, Thomas Jefferson. Yes. And, you know, we don't think about our forefathers. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is revered as, you know, one of the founding fathers. And the great president, great man. Yes. You know, you don't think about controversial elections like we see today happening back then. But, oh, totally. That election is covered in in this musical. And, um, And Jefferson himself, you know. You know, I feel like I have a better understanding of who he was and really all of these guys you know you see them in represented in museums and you see them in paintings where they're all just sort of casually standing around half smiling over some document or another right. and you just imagine them as being all 100% go team <laughs> and they just weren't it was right. just from the get go everybody was at each other's throats and exactly. it was just um, and there were personal differences I mean they all came together for you know right, to form right. a country but you know they weren't best friends by any means yeah yeah, and it, it is kind of an interesting thing about human nature that we when, when we have two opposing groups then they pull apart from each other and then within those groups people will find a way to pull apart from each other. Oh, you know, I constantly think about who is us and who is them. Right. You know, because there has to be an us and them. I don't know yes. why. I hate it because I personally don't like labels. Uh-huh. I don't want to be an us and them. I wish we didn't have to have it, but humans have to have it. And it's like there was this, I don't remember the name of it, but there was that comedy movie, I think Alan Alda was in it, back in the 80s maybe, where they were trying to bring Americans together, so they invented this fake war where Canada was invading the U.S. Oh, wow. And it brought the American... <laughs> it takes something like that to bring... It, there has yes. to be an external force yes. acting against people to bring them together. To bring them together, yeah. So, I mean, America maybe needs a fake war. Right. I don't know. It's, <laughs> I don't like that part of human nature that there has to be a conflict. Yeah. But... Um, but there always is. And when, yeah. when you win something, it's like, okay, we won the Revolutionary War. We got England out of here. Now we're going to be at each other's throats, like mm. within seconds. <laughs> well, and but the good thing is, you know, our Constitution still is a useful and living document. And that even when things get scary and even when totally unprecedented things happen, you can rely on the checks and balances mm-hmm. that were put in place years and years and years ago. Yeah to balance things back out again. Yeah. And so that's something we're seeing unfold all the time. But anyway, the aside from just the history of it, the music of it is really good. It's all inspired by it. There's a lot of hip-hop and R&B inspiration in there, and you can pick out lines where you're like, oh, that sounds just like Ja Rule. Or the fact that these founding fathers are all played by, you know, African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Asian-Americans. Mm-hmm. They, I think that was a source of some controversy at first. But what's interesting to me is that people who found it controversial that they were only looking for minority actors to play these parts to play founding fathers are aren't taking a second to think well how offensive is it that they didn't have the chance to be founding fathers 
you know, you're mad that only they can play right. Founding Fathers in this one production, mm-hmm. but they were not represent. They were not at the table when all that stuff happened. Yeah, it, it just uh, I can't, I'm totally obsessed with it in a way that I don't think I've ever been with any album at all. Wow. <laughs> Even in high school, when I would you know save all my babysitting money to go blow it at the record exchange on the weekends <laughs> or whatever, I don't think I listened to anything this much. And I keep finding new things in it. And you know, every time I listen, there's a new line that I notice, and all of it has made me much more motivated to cross all these things off our bucket list to see you know fairly locally all up and down the east coast there's sites where all of these things happened that we have you know at a snail's pace been crossing off our list but i'm much more motivated to see them now to see mount vernon and to see yorktown and to see and yorktown is uh uh, unveiling some big new visitor center at the end of march they are and i wouldn't be surprised if they have a stampede of people coming through to see that just because of that that's one of the the climactic scenes in the musical oh okay yeah the battle of yorktown and um so it's made me much more interested yeah. in seeing the visitor center and what they've got going on there. All of them are such complicated people. Yeah. So anyway, obviously yeah. I could go on and on about it forever. I just need to just make a whole other podcast Aww. where I blather on about Hamilton forever. <laughs> <clears throat> but that's what's making me happy right Good. Now. Awesome. All right. I think that wraps up the premiere episode. Yeah. We would love to hear from you. <laughs> so you can visit our Facebook page yeah. or come to our website at documentaries.com. Yeah. And tell us about documentaries that we should be watching. We've got a whole list going of of things that we want to watch and discuss uh, at some time. But if you have some that should not escape our attention, especially if they're streaming somewhere (laughs) and easy to find, uh, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you.